This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm back from vacation, and I'm so glad to be with you today. I started self-work six years ago in order to reach several groups, those of you who might already be interested in psychology or maybe you're in therapy, to those of you who might be looking for answers and talking to a psychologist could be helpful, but also to those of you who might be a little skeptical about reaching out for another perspective. I hope self-work will be helpful to you. I can't quite believe it, but it was 30 years ago that I began practicing as a psychologist. I was living in Dallas, Texas and just out of graduate school, and it was exciting and terrifying all at the same time. But I realized from the very beginning that I'd found what was and would be, and still is, my passion, trying to give to others the kind of therapeutic help and perspective that had helped me so much. Whether it was turning my humiliation over having panic attacks to self-compassion and acceptance, or to realizing how the dynamics of my family had affected my choices as an adult, from good to not so good. Therapy, seeking help, seeking another perspective, and then using that experience for healthy change was a game changer for me. People ask me all the time, what do you specialize in? As a fairly small-town therapist, I've seen lots of problems from childhood and adult trauma to depression and anxiety to couples conflict or perhaps worse in that case, apathy. That's what I've tried to focus on here at SelfWork, both specific problems that those with mental illness experience as well as more generic problems that we all encounter. You don't listen to hundreds of histories over the years. You don't do hours upon hours of therapy without learning something yourself. It's my firm belief that all of us have our own bit of wisdom, and when we look for kind and caring ways to share it, we can learn from one another. I began writing this episode thinking I'd talk about 10 things I'd learned from being a therapist, but I quickly realized that almost every one of them could be their own podcast. So today we'll focus on the first, not in importance, but the first that came to mind, perhaps connected with the zeitgeist of our time, the need to be right or living, being certain that you are. And we'll discuss these questions. Is having the need to be right a bad or a good thing? Is it connected with a mental or emotional condition such as depression or anxiety? And how can that belief affect your relationships with others? I've done my research and we'll look at it from various angles and then, per usual, I'll add in my two cents. The voicemail message for today is from a listener who's been on disability for years and is struggling with self-worth and finding a sense of purpose. Her son is graduating from college. She's getting divorced, so she's facing being alone as well. That's a lot to have on your plate. But first, let's hear from one of our awesome sponsors of self-work, Athletic Greens or AG1. Our partner, AG1, has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens, frankly, because they were interested in sponsoring self-work, and I never recommend something to you without trying it first. With one scoop of AG1, whose taste is somewhere between sweet and tart to me, you'll get 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. 
I love it because whether I'm home and about to go out for a walk or traveling and about to spend time with friends and family, I can start my day proactively, knowing I'm doing something for my own self-care. If you're like me, self-care can get lost for sure. In fact, its founder, after having severe gut issues, realized he was taking over $100 a day worth of supplements, which had their own very complicated dosage routine, so he created Athletic Greens. To make it easy, and because you're a self-work listener, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is to visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash selfwork to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's focus on the topic for today, the need to be right. There's a newish commercial on TV these days. I don't even remember what it's for, so that may mean it's not such a great commercial. But it features two people arguing about what just happened. One of them throws a red flag like football coaches do to demand a replay. And magically, the moment has been caught on tape and both can review the last few minutes. The one who was right walks away smugly. The one who was wrong looks embarrassed or like their hand's been caught in the cookie jar. And the commercial's over. So what's this commercial pulling for? Our need to prove ourselves right. To, at least in this commercial, playfully kid someone who doesn't want to admit that they screamed at a spider or forgot to put soap into the washing machine. But there's a much more harmful side to this debate. And that's when being right or the need to be right is more about proving superiority or grabbing control. The term gaslighting is one that's talked about a lot these days, and that's when someone intentionally questions your sense of reality in order to control you and even make you confused and feel completely disempowered. So the fight to be right can be a part of a narcissistic dynamic and very powerful and damaging. So let's answer those questions I mentioned in the intro about being right first. Is having the need to be right a bad or a good thing, hurtful or helpful? Is it connected with a mental or emotional condition, such as depression or anxiety? And how can that belief affect your relationships with others? Let's talk about the word need. There's a huge difference between needing to be right and being right or firm in your belief. The business world talks about this as the difference between being right and being effective and how that affects you as a leader. The preference is the latter, when you're guided by what's best long term, realizing the negative effect of creating a professional environment where you discourage creativity and new ideas because you've always got to be the one with the right answers. If you're interested in hearing more about this, I've linked to a great article in Forbes magazine on just this topic. Let's talk a minute about a superiority complex and its counterpart, inferiority complex. A psychologist named Alfred Adler introduced this concept decades ago, and there are different takes on it. He said that all of us are fighting, feeling inferior, so some people adopt a superior attitude to hide that feeling. Others state that it's not at all about hiding low self-esteem, but they just believe they are superior. (laughs) This term isn't used in any official diagnosis, however. What do I think or what have I observed? 
Maybe it's because I'm a Libra, but I can see that both these things could be. That some people, for example, anyone with narcissistic tendencies, they're usually hiding gross insecurity. If you can see that, it actually can help you deal with them and be in relationship with them because you can see their need to feel better than. But others who've absorbed from their culture that for whatever reason they are superior, whether it's due to their faith, the color of their skin, their gender, their nationality, whatever, that can cause them to be unkind or harsh or even cruel to others and not feel much of anything. This actually touches on sociopathy, which is a personality trait or characteristic that allows someone to not believe that rules are meant for them as well, that a certain code of behavior doesn't apply to them. But before we talk more about this fascinating topic of sociopathy, let's hear from Magnesium Breakthrough. If you don't want to accidentally take a laxative and have the worst day of your life, listen to this. If you're currently taking a magnesium supplement, chances are you're flushing it down the toilet. And I mean that literally. You see, the most common type of magnesium is actually used as a laxative. So if you're taking it, you're literally pooping and peeing it out. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The worst part about magnesium deficiency is how it affects almost every aspect of your health. Your metabolism suffers, you can't lose weight, your blood pressure goes up, and a whole lot more. And the worst part, as we've talked about, is your sleep suffers. So what's the solution? It's called Magnesium Breakthrough, and it's my favorite magnesium product that I continue to recommend. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb. And this month, they're including free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders while supply lasts. That means you're getting free products to try that will support your digestive system. Now, this special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com slash selfwork. That's magbreakthrough.com slash selfwork. And you've got to enter the code selfwork10 for 10% off any offer. So free product and 10% off. Try it. Okay, so here are the common traits of sociopathy, also known as antisocial personality disorder. Number one, not understanding the difference between right and wrong. Two, not respecting the feelings and emotions of others. Three, constant lying or deception, being callous, difficulty recognizing emotion, manipulation, arrogance, violating the rights of others through dishonest actions and impulsiveness. You can see that these are difficult people. They also take risks, and they have no insight or very little insight about the negative aspects of their behavior, and they have no empathy. Some with sociopathy may not realize that what they're doing is wrong, while others may simply not care. I wanted to bring up sociopathy because that is really the need to be right or feeling like you are right in its most extreme form. But spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle goes as far as to describe the need to be right as a form of violence. At its mildest, it's inflexibility. At its height, it manifests as dominance. So, these insights begin to answer our question, how does it affect your relationships? The need to be right. The simplest answer to that is, not very well. I think somehow it's because the difference between being right and feeling the need to be right. That's the problem, isn't it? 
It has turned into a need rather than just a nice feeling or confidence or trust in yourself. When you feel like, I think I'm right about this, that's confidence. I need to be right about this is dominance or inflexibility, as Eckhart Tolle says. So why does this need exist? Again, you may have been born that way or been taught to think of yourself that way. But here come my two cents. I also want to stress that the need to be right or to feel right all the time is a way to combat the inherent uncertainty of life. I want to say that again. The need to be right or to feel right all the time is a way to combat the inherent uncertainty of life. That's no longer about self-esteem or self-worth. No one knows what the next moment will bring. Absolutely no one. But we often protect ourselves, or some people do, from this uncertainty and fear by believing that they can control their circumstances. They can feel right about the idea that they have control. Because when you feel uncertain, you feel anxious. So it is a protection from anxiety. That's a little different than protection from insecurity. Maybe I'm being a little overly semantic, but I think there's a shade of difference. Let's for a minute also think about those images that will come up on social media. The ones where you can see one thing, but then it can also be seen as something else. It's ambiguous. There's not a right answer. At first you see a rabbit, and then you see a duck. (laughs) You can click on a link in the show notes if you want to see some of the very common, ambiguous pictures. People who struggle with what's termed black and white thinking, whose thinking style is more rigid, can feel actually very anxious about facing a situation where the rightness or wrongness of something feels uncertain. If they see the rabbit, they will look at you and say, there is no duck. I don't know what you're talking about. So if you're one of these people, you'll stick to your guns and say there's only one way to see or view something when there actually may be several ways to do so. I said in the intro, I think part of this episode was triggered by the zeitgeist of our time where so many people feel so certain And then are screaming at each other about that certainty when actually there are many, many perspectives. And that leads us to understanding context. Let's take the behavior of what's termed ghosting, for example. When someone literally disappears suddenly and without explanation in a relationship, they're gone. Perhaps your immediate response to that term is negative. Oh, ghosting is an awful way to end a relationship. You just withdraw and you don't seemingly care about the feelings of the other one. But what if I told you that this ghosting had occurred because of abuse in the relationship? That changes things, doesn't it? The context changes. Maybe the person who disappeared was afraid and disappearing seemed the safest thing to do. I think this is so important because often our contexts are different as well. The way we see something or think about something, we view a fact in a different context than the other person does. And until we try to take time to understand the context of that, we won't have any empathy for their perspective. Okay, so here are five points to consider or remember. Number one. Being right and needing to be right are two completely different things. You can be right, but also be humble. Feeling that you're right, or feeling that you have good ideas, or feeling that you've got something figured out will give you confidence. It will give you esteem. 
But if you have the need to be right, those are completely different things and probably have more to do with insecurity or, as we said, just not tolerating uncertainty. Number two, being wrong is a means of learning. Coming to a conclusion that proves to be wrong or misguided is a means through which you figure things out that will be helpful to you. When you say, I was wrong about that, what can happen is you gain more emotional maturity by admitting you're wrong and figuring out why. You had a vision at a moment in time when you were younger or less experienced. It's nothing to be ashamed of to be wrong. It's inherently growth. Number three, acceptance that you're wrong isn't about being inferior. Being right isn't about being superior. It's always important to remember that we are all simultaneously limited and enriched by our perspective. Your perspective is unique and thus has value, but it's also limiting, meaning there are other perspectives that are valuable as well. I'm constantly dealing with this as a therapist because someone will believe my perspective must be right. And they have to realize that, yes, it's unique and has value, but it's also limiting. Other perspectives are valuable as well. And even as a therapist, I know my own perspective is just that. I don't have a truth to offer others or you listeners. It's simply my perspective. Number four, a change of perspective creates growth. It's not shameful to change it. And doesn't it actually feel great when you realize your perspective has grown and changed? Now, for some, I realize a change of perspective can feel like it would be frightening. It can cause anxiety or even anger. But when you think about some of the most meaningful movies or books you've ever seen or read, it probably involves watching someone's perspective change. The Star Wars series is an embodiment of this as we watch someone cross from the dark side into the light, or vice versa. The battle of what's their truth, what's their belief, is fascinating to watch, and how their perspectives can change for good or bad. And here's number five. Living with uncertainty is a skill. Many people have sat on my couch and said, I've judged people for doing or saying or feeling how I do now. And they shake their head in disbelief and growing humility. Let's face it, you really don't know what you do given a certain situation, and you don't know what's going to happen. So there's uncertainty about your own behavior, and there's uncertainty about what's coming down the pike, as my dad used to say. One of the clearest examples of this in my mind was a woman who'd had four miscarriages and kept on going with infertility treatment. She said to me, I talked bad about people in this very situation. I had no idea how desperation would affect me and how I couldn't give up hope. So her perspective on the whole idea of having miscarriages and keeping on trying to get pregnant had changed drastically. Now, if you're very sure and you think you're right about what you, of course, would do or, of course, you would never do, you might say, I'd never go on medication. And I'd reply, well, you might if your child died by suicide. Your answer, my child would never kill themselves. My answer, well, they might if they thought they were taking some okay drug that was laced with fentanyl. Or they might if they'd felt tremendous pressure to be perfect. Or if they'd been sexually abused and you didn't know about it. Which happens a lot. And your retort is, 
Well, my child would never use drugs, and they'd tell me if they were in trouble. You can hear. You think you and yours are immune to everything that could go wrong? You aren't. No one is. Living with this kind of tolerance of ambiguity is where you find courage. And that's an important point, because we can be afraid and still be courageous about living out today and tomorrow, not knowing what's really coming. And you can also have a humility about not knowing what life may bring you and realizing your own need for reassurance that nothing bad will happen will get you in trouble. Change is inevitable. And if you can't or don't know how to tolerate it, maybe you ought to look at how rigidly you're living your life and what box you may be sticking yourself into because you were told to or forced to or somehow it made life easier if you could believe that you'd always feel in control. Living with uncertainty is a skill and one that you can learn if you give up needing to be right all the time. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Let's listen to the voicemail for this week. Hello, Dr. Margaret. I have a topic I want to bring up. Disability. I have treatment-resistant chronic depression. In 2007, I applied and received Social Security disability. I hate the label of disability, but I have to accept it. I have tried several jobs since on disability, but with limited success. I worked at a library for a year and a half and was able to get off my disability, but I had issues with a fellow employee and just couldn't handle it. I had a breakdown and haven't worked in seven years. My issue is how do I feel better about myself when I am on disability and can't work? I want to, but I just can't. I feel lazy and feel like I have no purpose. My son is about to graduate from college, and I'm going through a divorce, which is why this topic came up. My psychiatrist wrote a letter to my lawyer about my diagnosis, treatments, and inability to work. So being alone, I am having trouble finding my purpose. How do I find it? Thank you. Wow, what a question. How do I find my purpose? You know, I'm always honored when someone asks me such a deep question, and I want to say first that I'll give my perspective, as all of this episode has been about, and I hope that will be helpful. But do I know exactly what this person should do? No. But maybe I can give her some food for thought. First, whether it's because of retirement or disability or not being able to find a job, many people find that without work to structure their day, to bring home a paycheck, to feel independent, that their sense of feeling esteem about themselves wavers. You add in that mental illness doesn't show like other medical illnesses, and it's easy to fear that prejudice might exist, you can have a lot of trouble not feeling purposeful. Depression itself can rob you of that due to its tendency to mess with your sense of mental, emotional, and physical energy. Chronic illness doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's chronic So dealing with it on a daily basis and realizing that tomorrow may hold the same struggle can be really tough. And talk about needing courage. Oh, my gosh. So with those thoughts in mind, let's talk about what this listener might be able to consider or do. First, having a support system can be vital. 
Reaching out to others via social media or in your community can be so helpful. Isolation is its own problem. And this listener is also getting a divorce and facing being alone, as well as the changes in her maternal role. There are divorce groups, grief groups, empty nest support groups, grown and flown perhaps being the largest network. I hear, but I'm afraid to burden my friends. I get it. Few relationships could sustain one person being sad or down all the time, but this listener is going through a very difficult time, and hopefully she could find people in her world that will offer support. Second, what about volunteering? People with a disability will say to me, but I can't volunteer, because from day to day, I don't know how I'll feel. Well, if you're transparent, wherever you might choose to volunteer, then expectations can be adapted. And don't forget, simply being involved with an organization or others can be motivating in and of itself, which then can help you deal with your depression. Third, I wonder if she's exhausted treatment options. If trauma was involved in her depression, then there are newer treatment modalities, EMDR, neurofeedback, ketamine infusions, transcranial magnetic stimulation, that's all a bunch of words, But all of those can help someone with long-term depression and anxiety, and they're new. I've included in the notes a podcast I did about depression no longer being considered simply a chemical imbalance, and you can check that out. I'd be hopeful about some of these newer techniques helping due to the fact that this listener was able to go back to a job she enjoyed. Fourth, let's mention the conflict with another employee. She doesn't say exactly what this problem was, but again, I'd wonder about past trauma. If that's the case, then EMDR especially could be helpful. That's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy. Because it helps put past trauma in perspective by being able to remember more about it, but in a safe way. So, your emotional response to the memories greatly decreases. And last but not least, I'd recommend that she list her abilities. What are they? She might have lost sight of those given her depression and her current life circumstance. She might need the help of a therapist to do this. There are far too many people who, when asked to tell me what their strengths are, look at me blankly. I don't know. It's time to change that. That can lead to a discussion of how she could put those strengths to work for her. Thank you so much for your voicemail, and I hope these suggestions are helpful. Once again, I want to thank all of you for listening, but most especially to this listener for their most recent review. They say, week after week, self-work topics speak to me. Dr. Margaret had such a gentle and kind delivery of the messages I need to hear. She discusses everyday issues and what to do about it. I've written in a few times, and she always takes the time to respond. So genuine. Thank you, Dr. Margaret. Wow. That just pumps me up so much, hopefully not in a narcissistic way, but just in a way that I know I'm touching someone, and that's why I do this. So please take a minute to let me know how you feel and what you might want from self-work. And of course, at Apple Podcasts, that's best because so many people listen there, but really wherever you listen. I'm so glad to be back with you. I hope you enjoyed the podcasts that were published during my absence. You can reach me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can subscribe wherever you listen, or you can subscribe at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and you'll get a weekly newsletter from me. 
I've got lots going on in the next couple of months, and I'll let y'all know all about it. Thank you again for being here. Take very, very good care of yourself, of others, and of your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self 